Summer's nearly over, but hopefully lots more sunshine and a little bit more rain as well. Greetings from Joan Bartlett, still recording at home for Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. Or you could be listening on the podcast, 3cr.org.au, or you can listen to this program for a whole week on 3cr.org.au, streaming. And Tuesday Home Times follows on until 6pm when Done By Law takes over. But today, Street to Bay report, two years in the making, and another report, that of the review of the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act 1999 by Professor Graham Samuels. And much more with Neil Blake from the Port Phillip Eco Centre and his role as Port Phillip Baykeeper. The judges at the International Criminal Court have decided that the court has jurisdiction over crimes committed in the Palestinian territories, paving the way for a possible war crimes probe. Jessica Morrison, the Executive Officer of Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, will be talking about the decision. Green Left, celebrating 30 years of broadcasting, both as a paper and online. One co-editor, Pip Hinman, will be talking this week, and her co-editor, Susan Price, next week about the past, the present and possible future for Green Left. The establishment of the Australian Council for Free and Fair Speech. What is their aim and how are they going to go about it? We're speaking with a co-founder, Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees. And rumblings in the Pacific. Tsunami warnings after an earthquake at sea, but on shore. Demise of the government of New Caledonia and crisis for the Pacific Islands Forum with one third of the members quitting. So that's Tuesday home time. I do hope you can stay around until six this evening. First on the program today, Neil Blake from the Port Phillip Eco Centre, where he's also the Port Phillip Baykeeper. And the first report we'll be talking about today is the Street Bay report. Which buddy commissioned that, Neil? Uh, well, the, the project was a, a two-year project conducted uh, by Scouts Victoria in partnership with the Port Phillip Eco Centre. And it was uh, funded by the Port Phillip Bay Fund, the state government program. It was a great opportunity to actually get a better idea about uh, the sort of plastics that we were finding on beaches in the bay. We wanted to know where they were actually coming from. You know, so the, uh, the project enabled us to audit six different types of streets in uh, all of the catchments around the bay to get a sense of which, which uh, street uses were generating the most litter. So there was uh, retail sites, uh, industrial sites, parks, the sports grounds, and public buildings and residential areas. So uh, by being able to do a, a measured audit in each of those street uses um, gave us an opportunity to calculate precisely how many items of litter and, and particularly microplastics coming out of each of those streets per 100 square metres. And what did that audit find? Over, overall, the results found that uh, the retail sites were generating the greatest amounts of litter and cigarette butts were a, 
a large proportion of them. I think it was about 37% of all items recorded were cigarette butts. But uh, there were a, a couple of areas, though, where the industrial sites uh, were actually eclipsed retail. Residential, though, was the lowest uh, in all areas. So, uh, you know, clearly there's a bit of a hierarchy, I suppose, in terms of the types of street uses that are actually generating trash. And uh, sports grounds in some areas were quite high, but in others relatively low. So, you know, there's a few intermediate sort of uses that uh, need to be looked at. But what it enables, though, is that um, for each of those local areas, uh, the people who are responsible for waste management, which is primarily local government, uh, they can see where they need to focus a bit more attention to reducing litter uh, on the streets. Reducing it, how do they do that? Do they put more bins round, or it's an education program? Well, well you know, there's going to be a, a number of um, angles that will need to be approached, but certainly, you know, there may be. Uh, some education in terms of decals on pavements, just uh, you know, advising people to be more responsible. So, so behaviour change programs would be important, but also adding in some infrastructure like putting in cigarette button canisters and things like that in the right place. Um, but there also needs to be more enforcement. You know, so there's, there's a multi-pronged approach, I suppose. But then uh, over, the overarching thing that we believe needs to occur is there's got to be more product stewardship because uh, we're finding that apart from cigarette butts, one of the second highest contributors to the accounts were hard plastic fragments. And those hard plastic fragments, it's difficult to actually determine what they originally were. Now, they might have had a bottled cap or something like that. But um, when we examined all of the uh, things that we could identify, most of those were actually single-use plastics that are associated with you know, fast food tubs and coffee cups and takeaway sort of stuff and confectionery wraps. So um, ultimately what the overarching finding was that most of the trash, including cigarette butts, are single-use plastics. So the plastics, uh, the cigarette filters, are actually made up of a, a plasticised cellulose and not many people are aware of that, but... Uh, they're, they're dropping a, a single-use plastic on the street when, when they finish their smoke. And how are you going to change... So that, that's where the, the product... Well, we need to, well, the case needs to be made for product stewardship to say, well, do we need these single-use uh, items in the first place? And if so, why can't we make them in plastics that are definitely recyclable and, and there's a circular loop so that they're not just going to be uh, thrown away and, and treated as like they don't really exist. Has that been tried in other places? Uh, well, I'm sure it has. Uh, I think in uh, in Europe, actually, they've got a lot more uh, systems in place for a circular economy there. So where essentially if um, uh, an item, you know, can't be demonstrated to be recyclable or, you know, uh, and having uh, a system in place to, to enable that to happen, and container deposit legislation, I suppose, is one example of product stewardship where, um, you know, people actually are in, give, incentivised to hang on to their containers and, uh, you know, collect some cash for putting them in the right place. So that, that's an example of it. And um, we think that uh, that could happen with other 
consumer items too that uh, currently are single-use. Were you disturbed or surprised at the result? Well, I suppose um, probably not surprised, but it is disturbing, though, to think that we've known, for example, for uh, you know, decades that uh, cigarette butts are one of the most littered items in the country and around the, around the planet, and yet they're still enabled to be made of a plasticised product. Uh, and uh, despite all of these local campaigns and initiatives to reduce cigarette butt littering, uh, EPA fines, etc., the problem is still persist- persisting. So there obviously needs to be a fresh take on how we address the issue and probably have more of a national campaign rather than just leaving it up to individual local governments to try and uh, co- combat the problem. When you think that there's so few people smoking now compared to what there was, it seems to point that people are throwing their butts away more than what they did before. There's been some other changes though that have accompanied that. You know, there is certainly is a reduction in smokers, but nowadays they are not allowed to smoke inside in a lot of places and venues. So people tend to, um, you know, go outside for a fag. <laughs> and uh, there's no, you know, butt canisters or whatever there to accommodate them. You know, so for example, places like emergency uh, wards in hospitals and those kind of places where people are left waiting for some some sort of thing to happen, right around the corner from the fish and chip shop, for example, in Altona, when people go in, they make their order, and while they're waiting for it to happen, they go out and have a smoke. Yeah, so. We really need to look at those kind of uh, situations where um, people are going to be generally in transit somewhere, but they're temporarily waiting, and they're not, you know, so they're killing time. I won't uh, say anything about killing themselves, but so that's sort of uh, those kind of situations where people are out on the streets uh, doing that rather than being inside. Whose res- responsibility is to put these canisters in? Is it the individual businesses or is it the council? Uh, well, generally the council would be, um, you know, responsible for trash on the streets. If, if it was in inside a shopping centre, for example, then uh, that, that would be perhaps the uh, the businesses. But uh, certainly, though, the council is, has to be the key player in uh, initiating that sort of thing. And they, it's also them that are going to have to maintain. Report go. It might be that it'll certainly be. Return to the uh, the funding body, you know, that's the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. Um, and uh, the um, scouts have been fantastic in presenting their findings. So, for example, last week, two of the scouts uh, gave a Zoom presentation to the Clean Network, which is a, a gathering of um, local waste educators uh, from various municipalities around Victoria. Uh, to present them with the findings, you know, so that and and people from Sustainability Victoria. So uh, there's been also a number of um, Zoom presentations to federal and state politicians, as well as about 11 local mayors in the metropolitan region. So they're, they're certainly getting the word out. Has the container yeah. deposit system started in Victoria? Not quite. No, it's it's on its way. There's there's been a big shake up with. Um, the recycling in general because of the uh, decision made by China to uh, stop receiving Australia's plastic waste. And so uh, that sort of 
has really uh, brought on uh, a lot of um, consultation and uh, policy uh, refinement, particularly well across the nation, but in Victoria. And so um, there are new acts of Parliament being the Waste Act that has been uh, brought about that will happen uh, within recent, you know, the next few months or so. And other things too that are relevant, like the EPA Act too, which does have some uh, influence on people taking a general environmental duty, I believe the term is, where not only people but industry as well, where they need to be implementing correct procedures. So, uh, so we're going through a teething problems, I suppose, for want of a better word at the moment, you know, and, and industrial fires that have occurred in various places around Melbourne in recycling plants, uh, you know, over the last 12 to 18 months uh, have been a good indication about the need, the pressing need for uh, new infrastructure, but also new ways of actually collecting uh, recyclable materials, you know. So it's been surprising, really, that, you know, even though we brought in recycling in Victoria probably uh, 30 years ago, we still haven't got the, um, a system across the state where uh, bin lid colours are consistent in terms of what's supposed to go into them, you know. So we need to get those things fixed. They're pretty basic and um, uh, so that anyone of you who actually moves from one municipality to the next knows that if they use the yellow lid bin, then that's the recyclables. And that, the other key one is um, separating glass too. So that's proven to be problematic now with... Changes in um, in bottles uh, manufacturing, you know, they've actually a lot of those glass bottles are thinner than they used to be, so they they shatter eat more easily uh, with in recycling plants. So if they're mixed in with plastics, then the the broken glass in the plastics makes that plastic impossible to recycle. You know, so there needs to be separation of glass now from plastics, and those sort of things are actually starting to be implemented. Just staying with those yellow bins, I, I know that most of the suburbs around where I live are yellow. Can people have confidence that what they put in them is actually being recycled and not going to landfill? <laughs> you know, it's massive uh, um, infrastructure that's required, and they're, you know, they're, I guess. Uh, the, the challenge really is that as our population grows, there's an increased uh, consumption and uh, production of those uh, plastic materials yeah uh, a lot of a lot of stuff uh, does go to landfill because it's contaminated you know so um, a big part of the problem is separating the recyclables from the, the stuff that will go to landfill and so that that requires um, education but also uh, having the right infrastructure as well well, that's one report. There's another report that came out in October and that concerns the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act 1999. There was a big um, mm. inquiry into that. 30,000-something people submitted submissions to that inquiry. What did yeah. Professor Samuels come up with? I guess the most uh, the overarching conclusion was that uh, at the moment the the act is not effective. It doesn't actually achieve its objectives, and um, 
uh, one of the, the takeaway message was that Australia's natural environment and iconic places are in an overall state of decline and, uh, and under increasing threat. So uh, <laughs> this really um, puts it squarely on the table. We need to re- totally refresh our approach to biodiversity conservation. And you know, partly it's to do with the wording in the original act, you know, and uh, the fact that according to Graham Samuel's review, the, the act didn't clearly outline its intended outcomes and, and it's complex and cumbersome and results in duplication with state and territory development approval processes, which adds cost to business and often with little benefit to the environment. That sort of, uh, I suppose it raises uh, alarm bells really in the sense that we just don't want to, uh, I mean, the, the neoliberal sort of approaches, so we want to get, get rid of this green tape, as they say, you know, and so we can just go in and create jobs. And um, so that's where the problem lies, really. But um, one of the difficulties, as I see it, is that, you know, the, the Act had primarily just focused on uh, responding to species that were already listed as threatened or endangered. And many of the uh, development areas, you know, there may not be any uh, threatened or listed species that have been uh, well recorded in that, in those areas, and therefore the approvals were given. Oh, there's no problem from the uh, biodiversity protection point of view. Um, and what ultimately that amounts to is that we can end up with sort of death by a thousand cuts to the overall environment, and you know, loss of incremental loss of habitats. Um, is gradually eating away to the uh, the life support systems that actually do keep species surviving. So, the, yeah, there does need to be new uh, legally enforceable environment standards to actually um, make sure that the species up and our uh, habitats in particular are protected. He did talk a fair bit about Indigenous knowledge and views that are not valued in decision-making. Yes, that's right, and uh, that's um, certainly uh, very welcome news that that's actually being put uh, up uh, as, a, as a priority too, not something that you just take on at the end. <laughs> and I think that sort of highlights really the, the shift that we need, you know, in the Australian culture, modern day Australia, is that uh, a lot of our attitudes towards the environment is, is it's, it's a commodity. Uh, rather than something that we intrinsically are culturally connected to, you know, where an indigenous culture certainly did, uh, you know, have those really strong connections to particular species, you know, in local areas, for example, local clan groups might be uh, uh, protect or are associated to have a totem, a totem species that uh, it's their role to ensure that that species is uh, looked after. Uh, we don't. We simply don't have that in in this country, and it's largely because of our modern day history. Is essentially that we've been here to uh, take advantage of nature, however way we can, and without really sort of uh, having a close intrinsic bond into looking after it. Did the Eco Centre put in a submission? I believe we did. Yeah, I can't remember. We put in quite a, a number of submissions last year but uh, yeah so it's all um, 
uh, there's no real take-home message other than what I've just been saying now. You know, uh, the EPBC Act, as it stood, and the focus simply on uh, species that were uh, identified as endangered or threatened wasn't actually preventing the incremental loss of habitat and sometimes broad-scale loss of habitat in certain developments, you know. So and until we actually take... Uh, the view of actually looking looking after habitats in general and looking after whole communities of uh, animals that, and plants that are within those habitats, we're going to continue to lose biodiversity. And uh, and that's essentially what um, Graham Samuel has, has said. So uh, I'm pleased to see that. Well, there's a lot of work and time gone into this report. Is the confidence that the federal government, which doesn't seem to have a great deal of care about the environment, maybe I'm being a bit harsh, but that they'll do something about it now? Uh, well, you know, I think, Jan, as I was saying before, I, I'm, I, governments will do whatever the um, people will let them do. Uh, and uh, the tendency is that they'll uh, look after people's hip pockets. Uh, and that's sort of, as we saw at the last federal election, seemed to do the job quite nicely, you know. And I, I fear that the problem we have is that, as I mentioned before, we simply, as a, you know, as a nation, uh, uh, newcomers to the to this land, and we just don't have that strong cultural bond towards the nature of it. And uh, our tendency is because of we, the society, the kind of society we live in, is that we just try to get what we can out of it and without necessarily contributing anything back. And that's a discussion I want to see happen within communities, you know, rather than just banging on about what the government should do. The community itself actually needs to have it, have a think about it, what it wants, and uh, have some discussion about how we actually derive uh, the resources that we need to enjoy a good life and raise a family and have some sort of sense of what's a positive future if we're not actually looking after the environment that we actually depend on uh, for that future. He did make the point in the report that it's not just the federal government's responsibility, it's all the other stakeholders, whatever they are, that need to take yes, responsibility too. Yes, that's right. And too. industry obviously have got a role. Yeah, uh, industry's got a role to play. State governments have got a role to play. Local governments have got a role to play. And that's, uh, you know, for example, historically, local governments, their job was just to look after, you know, collecting the rubbish. And even though they managed the parks and foreshore areas, etc., they didn't necessarily have um, staff on board who were ecologists, for example, you know, or had that sort of ecological sort of perspective. Uh, and so... There was a failure there at a local level to um, again look after areas of habitat that were just sort of uh, not actually recognised as important. That's changing though, you know, and now, so for example, uh, local governments are actually commissioning ecologists to do biodiversity studies of their area, so there's a closer uh, connection. And in terms of and an understanding of what what species and habitats actually exist in their area, which hopefully will then influence the uh, maintenance contracts for the people who uh, you know keep the parks in good shape, and also can be communicated to the community so they have a sense of uh, identity with those habitats and nature rather than just being blissfully unaware of it.
someone whose desk does this report finish up or is it, is it sent to many places? Oh, well, it was um, commissioned by uh, you know, the Environment Minister, Federal Environment Minister Susan Lay at the time, so uh, it certainly be going to her desk. So um, uh, that's, again, uh, there was, I think, 38 recommendations that's, uh, which are recommended to be, um, occur, need to happen immediately. <laughs> you know, so it's going to be interesting just to see how, uh, how things do progress and whether or not, for example, this will be an election issue at the next election, which, by all appearances, might be coming up in the not-too-distant future. So, again, you know, it's going to come down to the media have got a role to play here, too, in actually uh, uh, talking about this sort of stuff. It's all really a little bit challenging, given that, um, oh, well, we don't have to hear about Donald Trump anymore, but we're still hearing about Donald Trump. And, and COVID is the other thing that's totally dominating uh, the media uh, at the moment. So it's hard, really, for environmental stuff to get a look in. Uh, but somehow that has to cut through. And I guess then the challenge is therefore for um, environmental advocate groups to actually make sure their communications is, uh, are effective and worded in a way that actually creates a discussion with people rather than sort of uh, trying to make them feel guilty and say you've got to do something about this. We've got to have a, a, a discussion that's a longer-term one. And that certainly ties in also with uh, our relationship with the indigenous community, you know, so a treaty and all of those kind of issues have to be put front and centre uh, if we're going to address and, and get to proper respect for the land. The final issue today, Neil, is the Eco Centre's work on monitoring beach erosion in Port Phillip Bay. What have you found? The uh, certainly um, the erosion down at the Observatory Point at Point Nepean is uh, continuing unabated, and so that's probably the most striking thing. The one area, though, in that has actually made the news has been Port Sea Beach, which people probably would have heard about that and how that's had um, massive sandbags put in place to stop the erosion there. But there have been other areas up on the further north up and around the Frankston and um, uh, Seaford Beach, uh, uh, Karam, where there's been ongoing erosion there too, which have been fairly advanced. Uh, we really need to start looking about how we're going to uh, come up with some adaptations, I suppose. If we're, uh, obviously, with climate change, we're looking at you know maybe sea level rises of up to now 1.1 by the end of this century. You know, so. Uh, as as the sea levels are rising, then that coastal erosion is going to continue and that will threaten infrastructure in some areas, but also it'll, re, it'll remove uh, coastal habitats, which um, are required species that uh, utilise those corridors along the coast, uh, a very variety of birds and uh, uh, insects and things like that. And also those the loss of beaches and the, the amenity for just being able to enjoy the beach is... Uh, going to be threatened as well. So uh, what the Echo Centre is doing at the moment, we're developing uh, ways of taking beach profiles uh, and recording sand surface levels across dunes and uh, uh, and also which plant species are actually uh, currently 
located in those dunes so that we can find the best species that are um, suited to for future plantings and additional dunes that need to be put in place, probably given um, some buffering by installation of offshore uh, semi-submerged breakwaters, you know, the stop wave attack on beaches. There are steps, those kind of initiatives are to protect our beaches into the future. So uh, it's an interesting project. And getting people involved in citizen science so that they can be more knowledgeable about what the issues are, but also know what to call things and you know what name, what the name of that plant is, for example, which which uh, animals actually uh, utilise the plant as habitat, those kind of things. So that people have a classic connection to their local environment and therefore see the threats of um, climate change and then perhaps decide they should take more effort in their own daily lifestyles to reduce um, the inputs that cause climate change. You know, so that's it's a sort of a bit of a continuing cycle, I suppose, but the first thing is connecting people with nature where they live so that then they can be more literate about it and uh, in that way help to influence government policy. Thanks for all your work, Neil. Thank you, Jan, for all your work. And Neil Blake's work involves his position at the Port Phillip Eco Centre and also where he is the Port Phillip Baykeeper. Five, four, three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due by Wednesday the 17th of February, 5pm. For more information, contact 3CR Station Manager on 9419 8377 or download the nomination form at the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au forward slash people. Judges at the International Criminal Court in The Hague have decided the court has jurisdiction over crimes committed in the Palestinian territories, paving the way for a possible war crimes probe into Israeli military actions. The decision prompted swift reactions from both Israel, which is not a member of the court and rejects its jurisdiction, and the Palestinian Authority, which welcomed the ruling. ICC Prosecutor Ben Sunda said her office was studying the finding to decide what to do next. The ICC judges said their decision was based on the fact that Palestine has been granted membership to the tribunal's founding treaty and has referred the situation to the court. The court's territorial jurisdiction in the situation in Palestine extends to the territories occupied by Israel since 1967, namely Gaza and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, they said. I'm speaking now with Jessica Morrison, the Executive Officer of APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, And Jessica, this decision by the judges at the ICC that the court has jurisdiction over crimes committed in the Palestinian territories, 
has its beginnings over five years ago, what has been called a five-year preliminary examination of the situation in the state of Palestine. What was instigated back in 2015 and why has it taken so long to bring forth a decision? So in 2015, Palestine officially, the language is, accedes to the Rome Statute. So it became a party to the International Criminal Court. Palestine's actually been trying for a decade to get heard at the International Criminal Court. But when it first tried back in 2009, the court said, you're not a party to the court and therefore we can't hear it. So after that, Palestine went and got recognised as a member of the United Nations and then it could then join different treaties one of which was the treaty that allowed them to, to join the International Criminal Court. Well, I suppose the next question is, why did they want to go to the International Court? So the International Criminal Court is the only place countries can go or individuals can go if there have been crimes against humanity and the uh, countries are unwilling or unable to prosecute. So it's the only place internationally you can go to have crimes against humanity heard in an international court. Israel was willing to deal with its, its war crimes itself. It would, it, Palestine wouldn't need to. But Israel's shown that it will not deal with any crimes against humanity or any of its excesses at all, any of its breaches of international law. So this is Palestine's only option. Is this court part of the UN? Well, it's part of the, the broader United Nations in that it's a treaty that we can all sign up to. So it was certainly part of the whole idea of the League of Nations that we would have courts and processes that would deal with, you know, the horrors of what humanity can do to each other. And it, it was it was formed... The UN was formed, of course, in the shadow of the Second World War and all the horrors of the Second World War. And bit by bit, the UN um, and the UN bodies have established different courts. So this one's relatively recent. I think it was 2002 uh, the International Criminal Court Treaty was established. It's been criticised in the past, hasn't it, for focusing on Africa and countries such as that. Is that a problem for... Palestine for this one? I mean, anybody who doesn't want war crimes investigated complains that the court's political. And that's certainly in this case. I mean, Netanyahu, the first thing it said on Saturday, he said on the Saturday when it was announced, was this is an anti-Semitic decision and Israel's being targeted. So it's, it's great to see claims that are outside of Africa, absolutely, because it's always in, easy for the Western world to point to Africa. But, of course, it's not the only place where crimes against humanity are prosecuted. So it's fantastic, and I'm really disappointed that the Australian government and the US government and Israel are seeking to spin this as a political decision when it's really just trying to hold Israel accountable for its war crimes. This is it's looking at Israel, but it's not only looking at Israel. It's looking at any party that might have breached international law. So it might be the Israeli Defence Forces. It might be Palestinian armed groups. So look at everybody in these cases and what other the possibilities and, and they'll investigate everybody. Now, Israel is not a party to the ICC. Do you believe that's for the reasons you just, just stated, that they don't want their crimes or alleged crimes to be subject to a court? When the treaty was being negotiated that set up the International Criminal Court, it included the phrasing and the the war crime of transferring their population uh, into occupied territory. So Israel clearly in breach of that 
and is therefore culpable of war crimes. So when the treaty was written, Israel said that that's the reason that they weren't joining because they knew <laughs> that they were being identified as somebody who committed war crimes. And what other breaches are alleged? The rules of war. Um, so um, Israel's um, focus on the civilian population, Israel's sediment building, um, which is where it's transferring population, and and it's particularly around the behaviour in the Gaza war in 2014. Can you explain that for people who mightn't remember? Uh, in 2014, Israel launched a, f- a full-on military offensive which bombed um, Palestine to smithereens, to, sorry, bombed Gaza to smithereens, killing thousands of people, wounding so many more, um, and devastating the infrastructure in Gaza. And so because of the attacks on the civilian populations, because of the military assault on the communities... Now... Hamas is also included in this. Can you explain that part? Yeah, so any party that might have been uh, committing war crimes is being investigated as well. So Hamas has been investigated because it attacks civilians, Israeli civilians and civilian infrastructure. So under the rules of war, one is actually justified to attack military installations but not civilian ones. So that is primarily what's being investigated. Why has it taken so long to get to this stage? So in 2015, a preliminary investigation was opened. Uh, There's been lots of questions about why it took all the way to 2019 for some people are wondering what, what was the reason that that took so long. But in 2019, December 2019, the prosecutor said we've found evidence of war crimes. Uh, But because Israel's not a party to their court, And because there's questions about whether Palestine had jurisdiction over that specific area, the prosecutor asked a pre-trial chamber within the court to rule about whether the court had jurisdiction to prosecute. So it's taken all the way till now for that question to be resolved. And that's what's happened in the last couple of weeks. The pre-trial chamber has said, yes, Palestine is a state, is a state party to this statute. We recognise that and we affirm it and also uh, that we have jurisdiction over the Palestinian territories, therefore, which is Gaza and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. Do you know anything about the prosecutors and the way they're chosen for cases like this? I don't. I believe there's a prosecutor and a, a deputy. Turning to the role of the Morrison government in this case, it goes back a few years and it's been pretty persistent. Oh, the Morrison government has been hideous on this issue. So in 2019, when the court said, yes, we see that there's evidence of war crimes, then Australia started arguing that the International Criminal Court shouldn't have jurisdiction because the Morrison government doesn't recognise Palestine as a state and they say Palestine shouldn't have the right to join any of the treaties. Uh, So in fact, Australia was one of seven countries that actually petitioned the International Criminal Court in this process trying to argue that position and trying to say that Palestine should not have the right to go to court. And then on the very Saturday that the International Criminal Court announced it, it, it had jurisdiction, that suddenly Maurice Payne offered a very curt press release saying that they don't think this should happen. Interestingly, Israel has been lobbying people in this, this fortnight to make such comments. 
Um, and in Senate estimates, it was revealed that Israel has certainly made many representations or made representations to the Australian government about this. So we, you know, it appears we've absolutely done Israel's bidding. We've had so many governments in Australia that have been one-eyed Israel supporters, but the Morrison government has taken this to a whole new level in trying to interfere with the International Criminal Court and a number of other things, like suggesting we move our embassy and establishing a military and trade office in Jerusalem and all sorts of things that have really put us in the Trump camp in terms of what we've done to undermine Palestinian rights. And when you think there's over 190 countries in the UN and only eight, and we were one of those who opposed this. Yeah, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's deeply disappointing. You know, there's 123 countries that are part of the International Criminal Court. You wouldn't think that Australia, who's signed up to the International Criminal Court, would try and prevent somebody else from getting justice in the International Court. We've got rid of Trump, or we hope that we've got rid of Trump. What's the prospects for Biden for Palestine? Yeah, look, Biden's no revolutionary, as we all know. Um, already he's mooted that he's going to try and overturn a couple of Trump's worst excesses, uh, so cutting diplomatic ties with the Palestinian Authority and cutting aid to the UN body that looks after Palestinian refugees. So the Biden administration has said they want to do those two things, but it'll be interesting to see whether they can get through the policy and legislative hoops that the Trump government put in in place. So we're saying that there's some relief that the Biden administration brings, but certainly no, no sense that they're going to spearhead a real neutral process for, for justice for Palestine and Israel. Biden and the administration have been very close to Israel um, and so they won't be as hideous as Trump. But everybody's saying they won't be nearly as bold as Obama, which is interesting because Obama, he had a very difficult Congress to work with, but Palestinians wouldn't say that Obama was revolutionary on Palestine. So we won't be looking for the US for progress to a just solution for Palestine. Well, where will you be looking for it? I think there's two possible places it might come. Um, one is in leadership from the European countries, and some European countries have made noises that they might put a bit more teeth behind their words of condemnation of Israel. But I think the second place that change will come is from us and from civil society. So, you know, it is clear that Israel's biggest fear is that it would be seen as a prior state. It wants to be a country amongst countries, and as long as communities around the world are identifying Israel's crimes as meaning we're not going to treat it as an everyday country, as a, as a Western liberal democracy, then that will force internal change. So we actually think that change is only going to come when the world asks for it, a bit like South Africa, um, that when the particular push gets strong enough, um, then the governments will be forced to act. So we think the leadership actually needs to come from communities around the world. But even that pariah state that's been overshadowed or overtaken by the apartheid state and that's, that word has been, or that phrase is being used in Israel itself now. Yeah, so in January, Betzalem, who's Israel's kind of premier human rights organisation, who's predominantly focused now on human rights concerns inside the West Bank and Palestinian territories, and has done amazing work at documenting all sorts of human rights abuses that have happened in the Palestinian territories. But in January, they decided to, that they needed to make a new stand and they released 
about how in the whole of historic Palestine, that is in Israel and in Palestine, there is an apartheid system going on that systematically privileges Jews over non-Jews. So, yes, it's becoming a new conversation. And, you know, it's hard to call it anything else other than apartheid when there's one bit of land but two sets of laws, one currency, one body that operates birth, deaths and marriages, but actually completely different rules that are set up for for people. Palestinians in the Area C of the West Bank got 32 planning permits approved last year. There were thousands and thousands for the Israeli settlers. So it's becoming more and more difficult not to talk about it as anything other than apartheid. Well, how did the conversation go after they made their announcement? Yeah, the Israeli government has been pretty hot-headed about internal criticism and has been trying to shut down um, any groups that speak up against human rights abuses. Unfortunately, similar to other countries, that value patriotism, any criticism of the behaviour of the government is seen as kind of treacherous and traitorous. So they've been trying to restrict the access to any any groups that speak out about the occupation or use the word apartheid from accessing schools, for example, um, or accessing um, local funding. So there's been a whole lot of repressive moves by the Israeli government against these human rights groups. Going back into Palestine and the, the occupied territories, what's the situation if, with COVID and the availability of vaccines? Yeah, unfortunately the situation for Palestine for COVID has reflected their experience with the occupation. So Palestinians then who were working in Israel brought back the virus into Palestine. So it hasn't been... The numbers haven't been astronomical in the West Bank and Gaza, but they've certainly been ever concerned. And because their medical systems are so compromised by the Israeli occupation and in Gaza, the blockade, they haven't had the medical infrastructure and there's had to be consistent international pressure for them just to get the basics of PPE and testing kits. Um, so the testing rates for Palestinians is incredibly low because they haven't been able to get access to the enough testing kits. So now, I mean, in terms of the vaccine, you might have heard that Israel is seen as a leader in the vaccine and has already vaccinated a significant majority of its population. But even though it is controlling the whole of the Palestinian population, it's let only a couple of thousand um, vaccinations into Palestine, that's for health workers, and only after huge international pressure for them to do that. So Israel um, is certainly as the occupying power, is responsible for all people under its jurisdiction and under its control. But Israel disputes that and says, oh, it's a Palestinian authority's job. Whereas we all know Palestinian authority has limited power and limited resources based on what the Israeli government lets them have. Are you saying that they're not vaccinating the many, many workers from the occupied territories who go into Israel to work? So the only vaccinations they've allowed into Palestine are ones for health workers. The Palestinian workers who work in Israel have actually had their work decimated and the unemployment now has skyrocketed because of all the Palestinians who relied on going to Israel to work. A significant number of those jobs have been slashed. Well, I suppose it also affects the economy of Israel that those workers aren't there anymore too. Yes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess, Israel, you know, like any capitalist system, um, often labour 
You know, they look for casual labour at places which are dispensable, and I suspect in many ways Palestinian labour has been dispensable, and as, as world economies have decreased demand and decreased kind of activity, then they probably have less need for labour, and therefore it's been easy for them to just not let the Palestinians have work. I don't know the specifics around the data on that, though. Just going back to the Australian government, what role does APAN see in trying to talk to the government, try to give a point of view, a Palestinian point of view, or is it a waste of time? Yeah, well, the Morrison government's press release has shown that it's completely locked into the Israel position, which is that Palestine shouldn't have a right to go to the International Criminal Court and, like, they've just slashed funding to the... UN body that looks after Palestinian refugees. So we haven't seen many signs at all from the Morrison government that there is any sensitivity to Palestinian concerns. The only exception to that might be around the Jerusalem headlong into establishing an embassy in Jerusalem and the outcry from both Australians and from Australian ally countries, especially Indonesia and Malaysia, meant that they backpedalled on that decision. So the Morrison government has shown that when it's in our own interests, we might not go quite as far as the USA in terms of being pro-Israel. But I think it would be fair to say that it's, this government is the most pro-Israel that Australia's ever seen and probably there's not a lot of room for influencing them. Where there does seem to be room to influence is the other parties and the way that they are willing to stand up for Palestinian rights. The case of the International Criminal Court, um, both the Greens and Labor uh, stood against the government's position and said they shouldn't be lobbying the International Criminal Court on behalf of Israel, which is kind of what we were doing. So there's certainly hope from other parts of the Australian Parliament. Um, in terms of seeing what's happening for Palestinians and standing up for Palestinian rights. And in fact, in the last few years we've been going up, we've seen more and more parliamentarians who are willing to stand up and speak out for Palestinian rights. Finally, Jessica, where does the court go from here? Yeah, so the prosecutor of the court now gets to choose whether to open an investigation um, and which would lead to prosecutions. So the current prosecutor... Their term finishes in the next few months and they're currently recruiting for the prosecutor role. So there's kind of a decision with the current prosecutor whether they'll open an investigation and then whether the new invest, the new prosecutor will continue investigations. So they're saying in their social media, they tweeted that we'll certainly be making our decisions based on our own mandate, not based on influence. Um, but you can certainly imagine they'll be incredibly a lot of political attempts to influence what the criminal court does from here. It's yet to be seen. We hope that, um, we certainly would hope that they will open the investigation, but it's in no way secured. But at least it's got to this stage. Oh, absolutely. And look, you know, Palestinians need a whole lot more than, than decisions made in, in international bodies that may or may not lead to action. But at least what this says is Palestine does have a right to stand as a nation amongst nations and human rights abuses in Palestine should be prosecuted. So whether we get to the next step or not, at least we've got to this step, which says Palestine has a right to prosecute crimes that happen in their territories. Because as we know, for too long Israel's acted with complete impunity about what it's been doing to Palestinians. And certainly somehow that's got to stop.
Thanks, Jan. And we'll see where it goes from here. I've been speaking with Jessica Morrison, who's the Executive Officer of APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Hello, this is Virginia from the 3CR Garden Show. We are back live to the airwaves every Sunday from 7.30 to 9.15. There are some changes. Sadly, Pam has retired at the Garden Show and will be sorely missed. But Stephen and I are excited to be hosting the show and we have many old favourites and some new voices. So tune in for the usual fabulous gardening advice. 855 on the AM dial. 3CR Digital or 3cr.org.au Every Sunday from 7.30 to 9.15 COVID permitting Look forward to your company Cheers Green Left Weekly, now Green Left is celebrating its 30th birthday On Monday the 18th of February 1991 the first issue of Green Left Weekly was produced. Its full-colour poster-style cover expressed opposition to the Gulf War, the first US invasion of Iraq. Thirty years on, there are two co-editors of Green Left, Pip Hinman and Susan Price. And today we hear from Pip and next week, Susan. I asked Pip first if she was there at the beginnings of Green Left Weekly. Well, I worked on the predecessor of, of Green Left Weekly. It was a paper known as Direct Action. I was sort of part of part of some of the discussions, which were in, involved the premise that we needed the, the the left, the progressive movements, needed to reach out of probably a bit too narrower circles and needed to engage more broadly, while at the same time having a principled stand on important issues of social justice and ecology, everything else that involves green left, I guess, encapsulated where we wanted to go. So both taking the ecology, the crisis of ecology seriously and linking those movements to the serious issues affecting working people, including at work and beyond work. So was that a, a, a difficult decision to go for eco-socialism because often with the the workers' movement and the green movement, they don't all see, always see eye to eye. That's true. And in fact, back in those days, in the early 90s, there was quite a lot of antagonism between the forestry movement and the timber workers. I think a lot has changed since then. Of course, we've got some of the same problems. But um, I think uh, we and many others who were like-minded and supporting the idea of 
project could see that there needed to be um, new alliances formed between people that were essentially fighting on the same side of the class line, which is for decent, sustainable jobs, uh, which respected the environment. Still an important discussion today, of course, very important discussion today. Green Left, we had a lot of broader support from the environment movement and um, quite a lot of support from unionists as well. So I think um, I think it was a, a paper for the times. Unfortunately, it stood the test of time. We're still needing to go down the same path and fight with greater power and urgency because um, when you listen to the science, you know that we don't have too much time left to turn a lot of things around uh, in terms of, um, you know, we might be in a better position in Australia, a rich country, but um, there's a hell of a lot of people in the world that are suffering the catastrophic consequences of climate change. What was the early format of the paper and and has it changed a great deal over those years? Well, of course, the early paper was, it was a hard copy paper. Um, The internet age hadn't, was starting to evolve. Uh, We did put Green Left online. The whole paper went online from the early, earliest of days, actually. We've never had a paywall because our our view is that we want it to reach, you know, way beyond um, the small circles of the of the organised left, I guess, and we didn't want any barriers to that. So, you know, since the since the the early days of Green Left, you'd have to say that Green Left has um, become a lot has taken on the plat the digital media in a bigger way. Um, we perhaps were a little bit late getting started on that, but we're really looking at it in earnest now. And we've got um, not just, we're into podcasting in a bigger way now, in a more organised way. And uh, of course, we've had a program on 3CR Radio for some time now. But uh, we realise that people are getting their information and want to get their information through different mediums. So we respect that and we respect that people have very little time perhaps to do the same amount of reading as they once did. We are branching out in that respect, although we still believe that a hard copy paper is an important part of who we are. Who were we in the early days? And have some of those people stayed, as well as a lot of younger people joined in? Well, Green Left was uh, was always an association. In fact, um, some people, my, my co-editor Susan can remember, her share that we we actually had shares in the enterprise. I think she still got hers. So who were we? We were activists involved in a range of campaigns. So I was I remember I was involved in the Northeast Forest campaign in New South Wales. We and many others. We were unionists. People involved in a range of unions, from the metal workers to the teachers. We were mums and dads, and we were students. I guess. You could say, uh, you know, the, the the people that were responding to the need for an alternative media or a media which carried alternative views, even if not everyone agreed with everyone else's view, was something that people really embraced. And I guess um, we know that there's a huge market for that still today. And um, by no means can Greenland saturate that market. I wish we could, but... <laughs> We struggle to get uh, to get through, but I guess that the digital platforms allow us a little bit more scope changing as well. Well, whether it's a newspaper in hard copy or whether it's on the internet, you still need journalists. And where did these journalists come from? 
Well, the journalists that we have, myself included, were never trained in journalism. <laughs> we were we were activists, but had to train how to get uh, messages across. I guess how to how to project the urgency of whichever it was, whichever protest that you were at. How to describe the information accurately. How to give an alternative narrative that would make sense that wasn't you know, gobbledygook. So, yeah, we trained ourselves, essentially. Having said that, obviously, some people have been professionally trained and um, they generously, if they're involved in protest movements, they donate their skills and time to training the rest of us. So that's how, how it's done, essentially. And you find now people have got all sorts of IT skills. They help out. But essentially, the, the role of an activist journalist is to, well, of course, attend all the protests and help make them bigger, but then report accurately on what's said and what the next steps are. So Green Left's focus has always been on connecting the ideas for social change with the practical reality of what it takes to make social change happen. You've talked about the different skills and areas where you and your comrades have been working but it's also an international paper, isn't it? There are a number of pages devoted to international affairs. Yes. Yeah, that was always an important part of Green Left. I mean, from the early days, we thought, we, we thought look, Australia often tends to be, well, the news media tends to be quite locally focused and uh, almost as if, we're not our, our closest neighbours are not in Asia and uh, the Pacific, and so one of the reasons we devote still so much um, page space, half the paper is devoted to international news and campaigns, pretty much, is because we see the important need to learn from others in struggle. So not only to report on the struggles, but to give uh, Australians an idea that we're not in this alone and we can make important alliances uh, with um, friends and comrades overseas. They've got a lot of great ideas that we can learn from in terms of their struggles. So international solidarity is important but also learning, learning from other people. So, yeah, we need to break down the nationalism, the xenophobia which exists in this country and unfortunately is... Oh, people are all too quick to latch onto when times get tough. So, yeah, that was an important um, brief for Green Left. And relationships with First Nations people, both here in Australia and overseas? Mm, very important. Yes, always. Sovereignty was never ceded. And unless uh, First Nations peoples receive justice, there won't be any justice for anybody. That's pretty in, intrinsic and uh, I guess it's becoming more understood by a younger generation. It's almost intrinsically understood by a younger generation that uh, First Nations communities need justice for anything to to move ahead in Australia in a serious way and move ahead in, in any form of social justice or ecological justice. Um, I guess you could say that over 30 years that's the heartening part one of the heartening changes that you could, we need to clock, which is, um, I guess you, you see it in Invasion Day rallies, but you see it in between, the strong support for Indigenous rights and, and real justice, real justice. 
I was really heartened to see that through the bushfires, catastrophic bushfires that Victoria and New South Wales experienced the year before last and now WA is experiencing, that a big discussion involved around Indigenous fire practices. But it, it, it did go well beyond that. And I think that reflects a change in attitude that we need to clock and we need to realise that sometimes when you're campaigning for as long as we have, you feel can sometimes feel prone to um, getting tired and thinking nothing is changing, but it, it definitely is. And I think um, even though many things still do need to change, rights for Indigenous people is something that younger a younger generation simply takes for granted. Now, actually achieving those rights is another question, but... <laughs> But uh, at least we're not starting back uh, from that point with the younger generations. And left culture is also an important part of your newspaper. Yes, um, we have a section devoted to what we call cultural dissent. Not a big enough section, many will argue, because political expression comes in many forms, not simply in article, straight article or opinion form. It is... Um, it comes through plays, poems, films, books and the rest of it. And so we we wanted to reflect that as well. And uh, online, I guess, we try and give that a little bit more emphasis than we can in just um, a short paper. But, um, yeah, a very important part because um, activism, people come to activism through a range of mediums. Um, they come to radical politics through a range of mediums. And... Um, one of those, of course, is through culture and cultural expression. So we want to we want to reflect that in Green Left too. And over many years of bringing to Australia activists from many countries for an international conference, I'm not quite sure what happened last year, but not the same as it has been for many years. No, last year we were restricted, like everybody. We had an online. Uh, conference supported by Green Left called Eco-Socialism, which heard from a range of speakers, including from Brazil. But, yeah, we have tried to have as many international conferences bringing international guests together as we can because, again, it makes the discussion uh, much more dynamic because, as I said before, learning from other struggles is a very important part of our brief. We are, I guess, modest because, you know, Australia, Australia still hasn't made the big social justice strides that we need to, so we need to learn from others, um, and conferences have been an important part of that. I think now with the, the pandemic not going away, we are all going to be doing international Zoom-type conferences, and people will also get used to that a little bit more. Technology is improving, and a lot of people are understanding how to use it better and that the communications are a bit easier. And actually a lot of people don't want to travel for ecological reasons. So I think they, these sort of gatherings will continue um, and so they should because so many people are working on the same type of projects that Green Left's reporting on and wants to be involved in uh, all over the world. And um, I guess, uh, you know, you can only, you can only get inspiration from listening to others doing what, what you're trying to do in, in your pocket of the world. 
So, yeah, very important part of keeping the flame burning in our chests is to have more of these sort of conferences. Yeah, but uh, we're going to have a celebration of our 30th year on the 27th of March with an Indian feminist socialist activist called Kavita Krishnan. So in line with the theme of learning from others' struggles, we're going to hear her first-hand account of the enormous uh, farmers' struggle that's taking place in India right now, where you know so many, so much of the population is involved in trying to defend the existing regulations and not allow the government to shift them onto basically more of a corporatized model. So we'll hear from Kavita, who's a renowned feminist and socialist across India. And, of course, she and her comrades are involved in the struggles too. So it will be very, very inspiring to hear hear from her. Finally, Pip, I know at, the, at this time it's a bit hard to look to the future, but if you can, where do you see Greenleaf going? <laughs> I think we're heading in a, more in, a, in a direction of way more activists becoming journalists, confident journalists, because they probably don't realise it, but every time they type their status or they make a comment on their Twitter or whatever, they actually are showing that they've got the ability to project (laughs) news and opinion. We're going to be encouraging, you know, a lot more podcasting. We're going to be, um, we're training more younger journalists to do what they probably don't see as work. They just see it as enjoyment. And, um, yeah, I think the future's good for us because I think, if anything, uh, when you hear the politicians use the term green left in a pejorative way, which they tend to a lot now, you realise that you're on the right track and uh, and they wouldn't be using that term if they didn't think that uh, it had some resonance with broader layers. So I think, if anything, green left was a bit ahead of its time back 30 years ago and... Really, uh, we've got to fight like hell in the next few years to uh, force our climate-denying government and opposition to take strong action on the climate. And, of course, taking strong action on the climate doesn't mean leaving workers behind. It means bringing everyone along with it. So I think um, Green Left actually shows the clearly the relationships that have to exist if we're going to build the power to force both government and opposition to take the right steps. Well, all I can say is congratulations and happy birthday. Oh, (laughs) thank you, Jan. (laughs) You've been a trooper for many years as well, so you know what it's like. But uh, thanks very much for your support and to 3CR. I've been speaking with Pip Hinman on the occasion of the 30th anniversary of Green Left, which began as Green Left Weekly, and next week we'll hear from Susan Price, who together with Pip are the co-editors of Green Left. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope, seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! 
Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. The Australian Council for Free and Fair Speech has been established to provide a collective voice on key issues pertaining to the Palestine-Israel conflict in the media and in public and political forums. The ACFFS seeks to promote balanced commentary and research on the policies of the Israeli government in relation to Palestinians and the impact of more than 50 years of military occupation and colonisation of the Palestinian territories, including East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights, as well as the ongoing blockade of Gaza and the grave situation for Palestinian refugees. It aims to counter misinformation and bias in Australian reporting and commentary and to advocate for fair government responses to these issues based on human rights conventions and international law. I'm speaking with one of the co-founders, Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees. Stuart, the important words in that title are free and fair, and you believe that in relation to Palestine and Israel, there is far from free and fair. Who are those who set up the council, and how do you propose to promote the ideal you've set up, recognising that you have, that there has been decades of lies, disinformation and outright support for Israel, no matter what. Why now to set up an organisation to look at free and fair speech? I think because there's a sort of momentum coming from across the other side of the world, namely from um, Trump headquarters, saying that you can, you can say anything. You can um, pretend that uh, Israel is the, the fairest democracy in the world and... Um, seems to be above the law. So I think the, the sort of the dismay about the consequences of um, the Trump regime claiming that to tell lies um, and to vilify people is an appropriate means of communication. I mean, it's partly a reaction to that. And who's in this with you? Well, my co-founder is Greg Barnes, the, um, the barrister lawyer from... Um, uh, Tasmania. So uh, the two of us plus a whole host of people from um, Palestinian Support Centre in, like, in Sydney, that's Kathy Peters and uh, Peter Slezak uh, and a whole host of others, Anthony Lowenstein, etc. So um, uh, I haven't got the exact list in front of me, but um, for example, Miriam Margolis, the, the, the actress, is, is another key member of that um, group. So are you Australian or are you international? You mean, well, it's essentially Australian. I mean, it's essentially Australian. But that's a good question because in a way we're not just responding to Trumpism but responding to the rise of authoritarianism, the rise of populism across across Europe, the uh, 
the fascination of um, of people like the Attorney General of this country to suppress freedom of speech, witness the prosecution of David McBride, Bernard Caleri, etc. And it's also pertinent that you have a number or a fair number of Jewish people within the group. Yep, that's absolutely uh, absolutely crucial. I mean, the the chemistry or the membership of the group is about men and women, young and not so young, uh, people of different religions and no religion. Um, people who believe essentially in that without respect for universal human rights, we are all lost. If there's a common denominator in the group, that's it. And how are you going to go about your challenge? Well, I think the I think the um, uh, to, to be upfront with statements of the kind that we, as in the letter we wrote um, yesterday to the leader of the Australian Labour Party, Anthony Albanese, about the absurdity, the cowardly absurdity of signing up to the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. That's one example. We can do as as much as we can with the leaders of powerful institutions. For example, I wrote to the managing director of the AEBC uh, on behalf of the Australian Council for Free and Fair Speech to, to try to ensure that uh, the protocols of the ABC about broadcasting don't include an adoption of that um, IHRA document. And what is this document? Called the International Holocaust Remembrance Association. I think it was crafted about five years ago. It's about trying to produce a, a definition of anti-Semitism that protects Jewish people from persecution, from un, unfair criticism. But it, it has become a means of protecting Israel from any kind of criticism and using anti-Semitism as a sort of to, to weaponize attacks against the people of Palestine. So um, for a whole variety of reasons, we strenuously oppose that definition. Uh, you saw some of the consequences of it in the pursuit of Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader in, um, in Britain. And by having Jewish people in your group, you're countering that charge of anti-Semitism. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think we can counter it whether we have Buddhists or Jews or atheists or agnostic or, or, or Hindus. I'm highly critical of the government of, of Australia and the government of America. That doesn't make me anti-American or anti-Australian. And I'm equally highly critical of the brutality, which is the centerpiece of the policy of the state of Israel towards Palestinians. That does not make me anti-Semitic. That, see, the, the, the charge of anti-Semitism is essentially lazy because anybody can trot it out. Uh, I'm not saying that, it's, that anti-Semitism is not very serious and should be outlawed, but it's um, a kind of knee-jerk reaction to call people anti-Semitic for even slight criticism of them of policies of the Israeli government. I'm not talking about the Israeli people, I'm talking about the Israeli government. 
You've given a couple of examples there of your actions, the ABC and the Labor Party. What responses do you get when you write to these organisations? Well, we've had a very positive response from the ABC. They didn't say, yes, 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 we agree entirely with what you've written, but they more or less said, be assured our protocols on freedom of speech are already sufficient and we will not, underline not, be adopting the IHRA definition. One needs to bring, I mean, the large numbers of the public are not aware, are not as well informed as they could be on this or on other issues. So our, our modest um, association could probably do 10 times more than it does, but we're trying. Would you say that it's a weekly or a, a monthly thing that you find an area that you want to respond to saying this is not free and fair in the media? We have to do that, but you almost need to be at it full time. I mean, for example, last week they had, some, what's his name, Alexander Downer on Q&A talking his usual pompous nonsense. There was no way for us, none of us were present on the panel, to say, no, please, we've had enough of your outlandish news, Mr. Downer. There is an alternative perspective. Can we have 60 seconds to express it? So there isn't every... Um, and you see in the mainstream, there's still a sort of a desperate fear of uh, saying something highly positive about the people of Palestine or, on the other side of the coin, being critical of, of Israel. I mean, the mainstream newspapers, the ABC, uh, even the Saturday paper, they're scared out of their wits to say anything unduly critical of Israel. Well, that, that, that really has to stop that sort of behaviour. Well, that just is, exemplifies the, the power and reach of the, the Zionist or the Jewish hold on the media, doesn't it, in relation to Israel? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, yeah, it does. But it's partly because there's people stick with stereotypes. They don't look at history. They don't look at, you know, how many thousands of thousands of, of people of uh, Palestine, in particular Gaza, have been slaughtered over the past 10 years, how many children are, uh, are shackled in Israeli prisons, how many thousands of men are in Israeli prisons, the cruelty goes from here to eternity. But, but um, do you think we could get somebody on a regular basis, maybe once a fortnight, to, to say something on mainstream television about, the, about that behaviour? It's pretty difficult. The recent decision about the ICC to take on the issue of war crimes by Palestinians and Israelis has the media, in your view, covered that? Well, well, they've, they've described it. That's fair enough. They've described that um, that uh, the Palestinians have agreed to it, including Hamas. But of course, then, then we have the wretched Netanyahu more or less shouting through the through our television screens that this is another example of anti-Semitism, that it's a conspiracy against Israel. Well, that wretched man. Let me not mince my words, 
uh, has been getting away with uh, those stereotypes and, and lying and massive cruelty as policy for, I don't know, for, for decades. But we don't call him out. I mean, when he came to Australia, when Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister, we were told that Australian and Israeli values were the same. So somebody needs to um, correct that. And I'm sorry that um, we don't have more time or resources to, to focus on it. It is an uphill battle, isn't it? Because a number of people, rightly I believe, are saying that this is the, this is the government that's most in, in favour in supporting Israel than all previous governments. So it's a big battle you've got ahead of you. Oh, Sure. Um, they, they love having contracts with arms manufacturing firms, particularly Israeli. You know, just at a time when we need disarmament, when we need non-violence, when we need visionary policies about a post-COVID future, they're doing behind-the-scenes deals that are slowly emerging to, uh, to sign up with the Elbit Company of Israel to, you know, to, to manufacture weapons. And now we've got Top Gun Morrison featured in a featured in a fighter plane to show how how good we are with the military. Finally, Stuart, how can people find out about the work that you are doing? Well, there is a web there's a, there's a very good website, the Australian Council for Free and Fair Speech. Yeah, we do need to publicise it a bit more. I mean, I think there's an easy assumption between people like Greg Barnes and myself and Kathy Peters you know, that people know, but um, look, I suppose our letter to um, our letter to Albanese and I'm sure questions that are going to be asked of um, Senator Penny Wong for being, you know, steamrolled by the Zionist Federation. I mean, she signed up to the to this definition when not even the Liberal Party has done it. And even the guy who, who wrote it said he didn't want it he didn't think it should be legalised. It shouldn't be the gold standard for defining anti-Semitism. But lo and behold, the frightened Labour Party rushes to comply. So in that, I don't have time at the moment, but somebody ought to expose what Senator Wong does. I mean, she presents as though she's always taking time to think. And sometimes that's a complete delusion, as is illustrated by her agreeing with this definition. It looks to me as though she... She cannot have thought about it. Okay, well, thank you so much, Stuart, and good luck with all this work. Hi, Jan. Good to talk to you. Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees, one of the co-founders of the Australian Council for Free and Fair Speech. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. now or never for climate action. So join the National Sustainable Living Festival this February for a program showcasing cutting-edge solutions to the ecological and social challenges of our times. Be part of the change and join the sustainability movement with a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. It's time to reset to climate safe. For the full program, go to slf.org.au. 
www.sustainableliving.org.au. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter. Last week, the Pacific Tsunami Warning Centre said that widespread hazardous tsunami waves were possible after a 7.7 magnitude earthquake struck the South Pacific. The quake's epicentre was 417 k's east of a town in the French territory of New Caledonia at a depth of 10 kilometres. But that wasn't the only disruptive force for the people of New Caledonia. This time a political storm with the collapse of the multi-party government led by President Thierry Santa. At the weekend, I was joined by journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And Nick, what was the catalyst for the collapse of the coalition government on the 2nd of February? Or was it an inevitability? The immediate trigger for the collapse of the government in New Caledonia was a looming meeting about the sale of the smelter in the southern province of New Caledonia run by the Brazilian corporation Vale. Last year there were riots and protests over the planned sale of this, you know, multi-billion dollar enterprise to um, a uh, Swiss-based financial company as part of a consortium rather than to uh, a manufacturing company that knows something about the complex issue about smelting, you know, an industrial company. And the independence movement, the Canax Socialist National Liberation Front in New Caledonia, had been campaigning for a, a Korean corporation that's involved, Korea Zinc, together with the northern province, where, which is dominated by the independence movement, to work together to, to purchase and run this, this operation. So that was the trigger. But underlying it is the push for independence. And as we've talked about on this program before, going back to the 1980s, there's been a strong campaign for independence in the French Pacific Territory of New Caledonia. They had an agreement called the Namir Accord, and just over the last couple of years, they've had two referendums under this political agreement, one in 2018 and then one again uh, last year in October. In both cases, the independence movement did much better than people were expecting, than polling was expecting, certainly that the pro-French forces were expecting. And in the 2020 vote, even in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic, the independence movement mobilised its supporters and increased its vote. Um, they got nearly 47% in favour of independence. And that's tantalisingly close to 50% in the majority. Under the agreement, there's going to be a third referendum, probably by 2022. And so the bringing down the government this week uh, through a parliamentary manoeuvre was very much part of the build-up to that final, third and final referendum um, on independence. What's happening with the smelter now? Well, it's sort of closed operations. Vale, the Brazilian company uh, that ran it, lost a lot of money because they used a particular type of technology that involves acid leaching of the nickel ore. It's incredibly complex, and they've had a series of environmental disasters in the decade that they've been operating the plant at a place called Goro in the south of New Caledonia. There's been a number of uh, leaks of tailings dams and of piping in the, this big smelter that has put uh, acid effluent into the river system 
and that's just destroyed livelihoods for Kanak uh, tribes, Kanak communities living around the site who rely on fishing and agriculture and so on. Also, there's a lot of competition for nickel smelting around the world. Uh, nickel's a really useful alloy uh, as, a, as a metal that can be used from everything to make alloys for pots and pans to making rockets to uh, uh, making armaments, uh, obviously useful weapons. But increasingly, the nickel alloys are going to be vital to make electric car batteries. And producers around the world are hanging out for the period in the 2030s where the car industry is going to be demanding more and more nickel to act uh, you know, as a crucial component in building batteries and systems for electric cars. And uh, you only have to read the newspapers. General Motors, the enormous American uh, automobile manufacturer, is now talking about going electric by 2030, which is only a decade away. So producers, there are three smelters in New Caledonia, two of which have been built since the Namir Accord in 1998. So two have been built over the last 20 years. They were all hanging on for this nickel boom in, in a decade or so, uh, where there'll be enormous global demand. But Vale, because of its technological problems, because of its bad relations with the local Kanak community, indigenous community, and because of uh, you know a whole range of stuff-ups in terms of finance and technology, they broke first and they wanted to sell their plant. Puts 3,000 jobs at risk and there's a lot of debate then over who will buy it with the independence movement saying, we want this technological you know process to be well-run, to be environmentally safe, and to contribute to a viable economy for a sovereign and independent nation. So the politics of nickel is very much tied to the politics of self-determination. And you can see that in other parts of the Pacific. For example, Bougainville, which is also moving towards a new political status, moving towards negotiations with Papua New Guinea over independence. Um, the debate about what happens with mining and with the Panguna gold and copper mine uh, in, in Bougainville you know, mining, transnational corporations, do you want the environmental impacts? Do you want the resources and the training and the jobs? Those are, are fundamental debates that are tied to this question of uh, a certain economic independence as well as political independence. What difference will it make with the five members of the S and LNKS leaving the government? Well, it's quite a complex system, but it's really important. The... Governments created under the Namir Accord first were elected in 1999 and they hold elections every five years. And the idea of it was that it's a multi-party government, that not winner takes all, as happens in our system, but that they have members represented from all the largest parliamentary groups in the Congress. That's the local parliament there. So if you've got six members of Congress, six out of 54, you can make a parliamentary group and you get to have a representative in government from your group. And it's all done mathematically according to, to how many people you've got. Um, so every government over the last 20 odd years has included both supporters and opponents of independence. And this was carefully designed with the idea that people could work together, um, you know, and, and be forced to work together, even though they had differences about the political future. The examples of that have happened in other countries. In Fiji, they tried it after the uh, uh, the 1996 coup. It didn't work very well in Fiji, and they've ended up with lots of trouble there. But, you know, it's a constitutional way of trying to get people. 
Northern Ireland, the Good Friday Appeal, saw Catholics and Protestants, the IRA and the Democratic Union come together uh, to try and work together despite political tensions, even a history of violence against each other. The fallout, though, is if a minister resigns, he or she has to be replaced by someone from the same party, the same parliamentary group. And if that can't happen, or if the party won't nominate someone, the whole government calls and you start again. And this is a parliamentary tactic that's been used before. In 2009, there was effectively a series of no-confidence motions in the president. People in the government felt the president wasn't doing a good job, so they brought down the government and said the Congress should elect a new government and the government should elect a new president. And that's what's about to happen. But what's intriguing is that within the Congress, the balance of forces is pretty even. The independence movement, as I said, not only in the referendum but in local elections, has been increasing its representation over the years. And there are now 26 pro-independence people, 25 anti-independence people, and three in the middle, three from a small Walesian party newly formed in 2019 uh, that represents the large community of Wallace and Futuna Islanders, people from another French dependency who work in the nickel industry, largely who migrated from Wallace to take jobs in the nickel industry from the 1960s, 70s onwards. So there are many now, a generation born in New Caledonia, they want to stay there, but they're Polynesian people rather than the Melanesian people of, of Kanaki, New Caledonia. And the indigenous Kanaks have long said to these migrants, come, stay, work with us, build the new country. Historically, though, the Walesians have voted for right-wing parties, but now there's a, a real turn-up in the last week where the Walesian party decided that they would join the list for the government candidates put forward by one of the independence parties. So you've got the small group with the balance of forces in the Congress throwing just three votes, but three in an evenly split Congress is, is all you need. And it could be that there'll be, for the first time, a majority of independence people in the government with this one Walesian group. And that majority can elect a pro-independence politician to be president of the government of New Caledonia. There hasn't been a pro-independence politician as president since 1982 when the late Jean-Marie Chabau had a very short window of, of government between 82 and 84. So for you know, nearly 20 years, uh, sorry, nearly 40 years, there hasn't been a pro-independence politician leading New Caledonia. Now, most of this has passed under the radar because there's been an awful lot of other things happening in the Pacific this week. But it's a really fundamental turning point. Still a bit of politics to play out. They choose the government members next week. Then there's a fortnight before the government members choose the president. But the numbers, unless they fall apart in the next week or so, are looking like there'll be a, a really big change that has implications for Australia's relations with France because successive governments in Australia, both Labour and Liberal, have backed the French as a colonial power in the Pacific you know, we've got an $80 billion submarine project going with the French, which is our dominant partnership agreement at the moment as part of the Indo-Pacific strategy, so-called. But this is really going to throw a spanner in the works for that strategy if uh, New Caledonia changes its political leadership. What's been the role of the former president over the last months? Well, the uh, President Thierry Santa, uh, who's uh, a New Caledonian, uh, pro-French, uh, leader of a, a coalition called the uh, Avenir en Confiance, the Future with Confidence. Um, these are three right-wing parties that did well in the 2019 elections. Uh, he was elected 
with six votes out of five in the government in 2019. He's led a very conservative government and one that's fought against not only independence, but also a number of uh, progressive policies advanced around issues like health, issues like uh, uh, the trade union uh, and workplace rights and so on. So the FLNKS ministers have had to bite their tongue and put up with the right-wing policies advanced by the Santa government um, in order to uh, maintain this multi-party group. But um, the final straw was this attempt not to sell the Vale nickel smelter to a company that had expertise in protecting the environment, in managing a complex metallurgical process like this um, smelting process, but rather to a group of financiers, this Swiss company Trafigura, which has a pretty poor track record of its operations in other parts of the world. Um, as one Kanak leader said to me, they're not interested in the metal, they're interested in the money. The independence movement wants someone to invest in this project that's going to be in for the long haul, that's not in there for quick profits, but in there to um, work with the local community, work with local subcontractors, employ lots of people um, in, this, uh, in this whole enterprise. Um, and so while Thierry Santos is a nice bloke, I've interviewed him a few times, and a, a man you know, who's tried to pull things together, he leads a coalition that includes a number of really conservative, you know, extreme right-wing politicians, some of them, who just doesn't accept that this is a decolonisation process that's been going on since the 1980s, and it's coming to an end. We're nearing the end game of a long, drawn-out transition towards a new political status, and the FLNKS is saying now's the time. How's the economy going, especially when 3,000 people have lost their jobs, and there must be jobs outgoing from those jobs, and also COVID-19, how's it going for them? COVID's had a, a big impact, like it has everywhere in the Pacific, New Caledonia is a bit like Australia. It um, very early on had a number of cases, uh, particularly with people arriving from overseas, whether as tourists or as people arriving from France or whatever. They established a very strong quarantine system. Um, in fact, they had a three-week quarantine system, two weeks in a hotel, one week in uh, home isolation. And so the, the, having Kanak ministers in the government, having... Uh, under the Numeria Accord, also control over health at the border. Um, France still controls customs and immigration, but New Caledonia has authority over most aspects of the health system, including border health quarantine issues, and they played that card very strongly. Um, as one example, the France's overseas minister, Sebastien Lecornu, travelled to New Caledonia at the end of last year after the October referendum, and they stuck him in a hotel for two weeks to do quarantine, and you know, the tone of some of his stuff was, hang on, this is the minister, you can't put him in a hotel. They said, sorry, two weeks, a fortnight. And that's a sharp contrast to French Polynesia, which is another French territory in the Pacific, as the name suggests, doesn't have the same control um, over health issues and border issues that the government does in New Caledonia because of the Namir Accord, which is quite unique in French law. And there's been a COVID disaster in New Caledonia, in French Polynesia, 18,000 cases, more than 132 dead people. It's a tragedy, tragedy. And so New Caledonia's had a bit of luck. They've still been able to export minerals to China, to Korea, to other uh, locations, Japan, and that's provided revenue just as Australia has continued its mineral exports despite uh, there. The damage to tourism is obvious for all Pacific countries, that many of which are very reliant on tourism, and that's certainly been a 
uh, a hit to the economy. And the, the Vale crisis has, has not helped with, you know, as I say, thousands of workers employed directly and a lot of people indirectly, you know, particularly as subcontractors, as truck drivers, um, people involved in moving metal around and nickel ore and, and so on. There's a lot of uh, local businesses that have, uh, you know, been very anxious, and that's a, a big problem all around the Pacific. But the government has um, really decided, like ours, that maintaining a strong border quarantine system is, is vital to stop the sort of tragedy that you see in America, in, in Britain, and indeed in France, where there's been you know, tens of thousands, 70,000 odd cases. So I haven't seen a lot of these figures. It's terrible. You are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. This is Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Just on the other issue for the Pacific, reading from a speech by the Fiji Head of Government, our strength lies in our solidarity. This year marks 50 years since the founding of the Pacific Islands Forum. Six sovereign nations and the Cook Islands came together in Wellington in 1971 to form what was then the South Pacific Forum. The small island states of the Pacific, newly independent, and soon more will join as new nations formed from the rapidly diminishing colonial presence in our part of the world. Less than two weeks later, the Pacific Islands Forum is in disarray after one-third of the nations have resigned en masse. What's happening? It's uh, a big problem, and it's tragic uh, in some ways, but it's uh, been a long time brewing. The forum includes Australia, New Zealand, two French territories, New Caledonia, French Polynesia, since 2016, and uh, 14 other independent island nations. As you say, it's grown since its founding 50 years ago to be the premier political organisation in the region. There are other technical agencies, intergovernmental agencies in the region, the South Pacific Regional Environment Program, for example, uh, whose name says it all, the, the Pacific Community, what used to be called the South Pacific Commission, which is the main uh, technical organisation that works on programs around health and agriculture, uh, fisheries, technical issues, um, and, and many other topics. But the forum was a place where leaders came together, political leaders, to discuss uh, questions of politics, of security, and to try and develop a, a collective voice around uh, the major challenges facing the region. As we've discussed in previous programs, there's been a, a lot of tension within the forum. People may remember back to 2019, where Prime Minister Scott Morrison went to the last face-to-face -face meeting of the forum in Tuvalu. There was a huge fight over um, climate change. Um, Australia, not surprisingly, doesn't agree with the strong calls for action for more urgent and more extensive emissions reduction. Um, many smaller island states calling for, uh, indeed, an end to new coal mines, no more new power stations and so on. So that's been a real source of division for many years um, under both Labor and Liberal governments between Australia and its Pacific Island neighbours. But the split last week came from the Micronesian countries. You know, there are three sort of broad ethnographic, cultural, linguistic regions of the Pacific, uh, named long time ago by a French explorer. Polynesia, the many islands in the eastern Pacific, countries like Tonga, Cook Islands, French Polynesia, Tuvalu, Melanesia, the Black Islands, uh, those are the ones closest to Australia. They're much larger, 
Papua New Guinea with 8 million people, Fiji with 850,000, 900,000, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, New Caledonia. And up in the northern Pacific, the smaller Micronesian islands, micro, small islands, very small populations spread over a vast distance, Nauru, Kiribati, and the, what they call the compact states, three countries in the northern Pacific that have signed a compact of free association with the Americans, Marshall Islands, Federated States of Micronesia, Palau. And the five Micronesian countries um, have argued for, you know, since 2014 that it's their turn to nominate a candidate for the Secretary General of this regional organisation when the headquarters in, in Suva, Fiji. Um, the last time there was a Micronesian as Secretary General was back in 1992. Jeremiah Tabai, a former president of Kiribati, was elected for two terms back in the 1990s. And the, the Micronesians said, it's our turn. There's been Polynesian leaders, Micronesian, indeed even an Australian as Secretary General, and the Micronesians nominated the, the late Tony de Brum, former Marshall Islands Foreign Minister, back in 2014 uh, as a candidate. At the time, people said, oh, your application's in too late, he can't stand, um, which was technically true, but the Micronesians were not pleased by that. So this time round, as the current Secretary-General, Dame Meg Taylor, finishes up her second term of office, the Micronesians came together as a block of five countries and nominated another candidate from the Marshall Islands back in 2019. So two years ago, they said, this is who we want. But since then, four other countries nominated people to contest the Micronesian position. They've had enough and they've walked out. Um, it's a, a major blow to the way the forum works at the moment. And it's very early days in terms of what's going to happen. Some politicians, indeed Maurice Payne, Australia's Foreign Minister, hopes that some of the five walkouts can, can be wooed back into the forum. But there's a lot of underlying questions about how the forum works, whether it addresses the collective needs of Pacific countries or whether they should better work through sub-regional organisations in the different parts of the Pacific. So, you know, an organisation of five that's grown to, to 18 has lots of checks and balances, lots of problems in, in operating. There's always been a debate about whether Australia and New Zealand should be part of the, the process and leave the, the political organisation to the islands. Um, that debate is, I think, going to heat up once again. When you say heat up, what do you mean? Well, there are differences that are not a matter of ill will, they're a matter of the different priorities and national interests, class interests of the governments that, are, that make up the regional organisation. As I mentioned, the classic position is on uh, climate change, where Australia is really out of step <laughs> with most of the world, but particularly with the low-lying atoll nations of the Pacific. And it's very hard each year when the leaders come together to forge a consensus in the so-called Pacific way of mediation, reciprocity, respect, when you've got someone like Scott Morrison, who's famous for carrying a lump of coal into Parliament and loves taunting his enemies about how fossil fuels are important. And it's not helped, you know, as they went into this year's special retreat online because the face-to-face -face meeting last year was cancelled because of the pandemic, so they've had to have this online meeting. Because, you know, the very week that they're meeting... You know, Barnaby Joyce and Matt Canavan and the National Party are calling for more coal mines, Australian taxpayers to pay for coal-fired power stations. So this fundamentally doesn't go down well in the Pacific. But there are a whole lot of other issues on trade, on decolonisation, 
on uh, nuclear issues and so on, where Australia is is looking at its partnerships, its strategic relationships with great and powerful friends and putting the interests of its Pacific to one side. So I mentioned the partnership with France to build submarines, to uh, think about France's role in the so-called Indo-Pacific region. You know, Australia's got a, a strategic partnership signed. Successive governments, Kevin Rudd, Malcolm Turnbull, Morrison, have all uh, seen France as a, a key partner, despite the fact that there's strong anti-independence movements in the French dependencies in the Pacific. You know, Australia has fiercely resisted the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, a new disarmament treaty that has important provisions to assist uh, survivors of nuclear testing and nuclear explosions. Now, that's vitally important for a number of countries in the Pacific, dare I say, including Australia. Think about Maralinga and Aboriginal people affected by nuclear testing. But, you know, there were more than 310, 315 nuclear tests, depending on how you count them, across the Pacific over 50 years. Now, people still living with their health and environmental impacts. So New Zealand and 10 other countries have signed and ratified the treaty, members of the Pacific Islands Forum. The French dependencies have it, the US dependencies have it, and Australia has refused to join New Zealand, Fiji, Samoa, Tuvalu, and many other countries that believe that this is a way forward to address the incredible health and environmental impacts of this uh, nuclear era in the 20th century. So on a whole range of issues, Australia is looking to its global partnerships with the Americans, with France, with Japan, and so on, and that sometimes clashes with its regional interests with uh, the Pacific. Our strength lies in our solidarity. Where's that going to go now? Would it be possible for the three groupings well, to do it independently, or that are they be too weak to do that? Good question, and I'll tell you in a few months when we know the answer. Frankly, it's too early to say. It's it's a, a major blow to the forum, obviously, because one of the strengths that it's had is that it's taken the regional voice into international meetings, most importantly on climate change, where um, Pacific Island leaders have developed joint statements, even with the Australian government trying to water down the statements. They've gone to the global climate negotiations through the COPs, the Conference of the Parties, to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And you, know, you people may recognise names like Anoti Tong and, and Eli Sopoanga of Tuvalu and many others who played a leading role in playing David and Goliath against the major emitting powers in the greenhouse gas uh, race. You know, there are other examples where having a collected voice on issues like global fisheries, um, around ocean management and maritime boundaries. Increasingly, there's a lot of interest and attention on the issue of deep sea mining. Um, so having collective positions, rather than having powerful countries, transnational corporations and so on, playing off one country against another, is there. The sub-regional organisations have grown up over many years. The Polynesian Leaders Group, the Micronesian Presidents Summit, the Melanesian Spearhead Group and these sub-regional groups I think will be stronger and more focused on in coming months. But there'll be a lot of debate about whether the, the division can be rebuilt, whether you know the new incoming Secretary General, Henry Puna of the Cook Islands, can play a, a role to mediate with people who he's perceived as insulting. lot of water under the bridge. I think uh, uh, one of the important things is for people in Australia 
to listen to uh, voices coming out of the Pacific rather than simply the the think tank talking heads in Australia who are more focused on issues obviously around China rather than on the development needs that are, are at the heart of some of these debates between the smaller island states and the larger countries in the forum like Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, Papua New Guinea. Just finally, Nick, what are your friends in the Pacific saying to you? There'd be sadness, there'd be caution, there'd be apprehension, all of the above and more? Well, um, the last few days they've been saying, sorry, you're in lockdown again. Oh. Um, <laughs> you know, many Pacific countries uh, are looking to neighbours like Australia for support at this time, whether that's economic support, whether it's going to be with the vaccine rollout. You know, Scott Morrison has pledged uh, at, the, at the summit uh, of, of Pacific leaders the other day that, um, you know, some of the vaccines developed at CSL here in Melbourne will be rolled out to the Pacific. But people are, are, are very concerned about what the timeline is for that. So I think it's really important that people in the Pacific monitor what's going on in Australia very closely. I think the tragedy is that, you know, our mainstream media does a, a, a rotten job in, in listening to the multiple voices, the multiple debates that are going on in our region. They don't certainly pay attention to the voices coming out of the, the people's movements. You know, the environmental activists, the climate change activists, the movements for self-determination and independence. Indeed, the common sense in Canberra has been to decry the strength of the Timorese independence struggle, the West Papuan independence struggle, the people of Bougainville, people of New Caledonia, even in French Polynesia. And yet, when Bougainvillians finally had the chance for a referendum on independence, they voted 97% in favour of independence and are now going into the negotiating room with uh, the P government, with uh, Ishmael Torama, the leader of Bougainville, you know, going into the negotiations with the PNG government with 97% support behind you? Gee, you'd, any politician would feel that as a, as a strength. Um, I think this is the, the failure that the, the sort of analysis of the Pacific that's dominated by think tanks like uh, in Australia, like ASPE and the Lowy Institute and so on, misses the multiple voices coming from the Pacific and particularly from people's movements around environment, around decolonisation, around the struggle against resource exploitation and the struggle to, to control transnational corporations involved in logging and fishing and mining. Um, these to get better revenues and returns from these resource exploitation. This is the struggle that's on in the Pacific. It's, it's certainly underway, even in the midst of a pandemic. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. So this is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. It's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting what is becoming 
becoming an increasingly important actor in the military industrial complex. Exposing that to people, I think, is very important. People will care if they understand that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. It's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us is that we are all connected and these structures are all connected. We can see that much more clearly now than we could before. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.